0: Before we get started, I uh, just got kind of a couple housekeeping issues. Um, we're in an age where, you know, sometimes you, you have to prepare for emergency situations, fires, what, whatever. Um, we have docents that are out front who will be in vests, and if in the case of any emergency, please just walk <laughs> orderly right out and they I'm will direct I'm you sure to <laughs> a safe place. But we don't think anything <laughs> like that's going to happen at all. Um, First, I'd very much like to welcome um, some very special people uh, who uh, are very important to CSIS. General Scowcroft is here and Judge Webster is here right in the front, two tremendous American heroes. And I'd also like to welcome the Dean of the Schieffer College of Communication, Dean Button is here. We are so grateful to the Schieffer College of Communication at TCU, um, who we've been partnered with for many years doing this great series. And without them and without Bob, this would not be possible. Uh, In addition, I'd like to thank the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation, who this series has has been our generous sponsor of this series. And uh, without their help, this series would not be possible. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to invite my colleague, um, Dr. John Alterman, who's our senior vice president, Brzezinski chair, and director of our Middle East program to set the stage for this discussion. So, John, please take it away.
1: Thank you, Andrew. It seems to me that as we begin the discussion tonight, we have to take cognizance of the fact that Syria isn't one problem. Syria is a set of problems. There's a political problem, There's a humanitarian problem. There's a radicalization problem. It has aspects of a proxy war among great powers and aspects of a proxy war among regional powers. It's feeding a radical movement that not only is taking root in Muslim-majority countries, but in Muslim communities around the world. And in some ways, what we're seeing in Syria right now captures all of the conflicts that we saw in the 20th century state-on-state conflicts, ethnic conflicts, proxy wars, terrorism, extremism, and in some ways it exceeds all of these. Almost half of all Syrians have been forced from their homes. Worldwide, the total number of refugees now is 60 million, which is larger than the total after World War II. What's perhaps most difficult about the, the problem in Syria now is the difficulty in trying to understand what does victory look like? We've been in conflicts where we had some sense of what victory looked like, but what does victory in Syria look like? How do non-state groups surrender? How can murderous regimes be pushed from power when there's little agreement on what would be better? Compared to these questions, the sort of ordinary operational questions about how the U.S. and Russia can avoid shooting at each other, how target sets should be derived, how outside forces can and could and can and should coordinate their support of combatants are relatively small questions. But in truth, any one of those questions is enormous and enormously difficult. There are two other things that demand consideration, even if they don't have answers right now. The first is to acknowledge the refugee situation in Syria is going to endure for many years after there's a political settlement, and we don't yet have a political settlement on the horizon. Even in the best case scenario, the Syrian refugee crisis will last for a decade, and we're not at all prepared for that. The second issue is how do we ensure that this refugee crisis doesn't turn into a radicalization crisis down the road? Millions of kids have had their educations disrupted and are currently out of school. Untold numbers have seen their families killed before their very eyes. We're spoiled that the displacement of World War II didn't create a generation of radicalization. The horrors of World War II created a Europe and an Asia that yearned for normalcy. But do we have the same confidence that the displaced populations in Syria are going to have the same outcome? In today's Middle East, it's hard to have the same confidence, especially because in today's world, the capacity of even small groups of people to disrupt and destroy is far larger than it was even a generation ago. I don't have to solve <coughs> this question tonight. That's up to these gentlemen. <laughs> Mr. Schieffer, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Great.
2: John. <laughs> That's good. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introductions for these people. They're all my friends, and you all know them as well as I do. i just start off by saying, uh, Tom Friedman, uh, three Pulitzers, uh, probably the single best book written on the Middle East, uh, still in print, I would also say, from Beirut to Jerusalem. David Ignatius, Washington Post columnist. Uh, David has mastered the ability to write fiction. And basically, tell the story of what's happening there, in many cases just changing the names to protect the innocent, as they <laughs> used to say
3: on that old. Or the guilty.
2: Uh, the guilty. Probably more often the guilty. Uh, but certainly, one of the most insightful uh, people uh, working uh, the beat today. And his, his column is, is absolutely must reading in the Washington Post. And then, my friend Nancy Youssef. Uh, for many years, Cairo bureau chief for uh, the McClatchy newspaper chain, Baghdad bureau chief, then later longtime Pentagon correspondent uh, for McClatchy. She now uh, is the chief foreign affairs writer for uh, uh, for the Daily Beast and. Ben Carson would not let her be president because she's a Muslim. so don't... <laughs> <laughs> but I think she can handle that. <laughs> you know, I once said, if, if I were elected president, I would make... to be the secretary of defense, and Nancy, you can be the national security advisor, but I'd leave it to all three of you to work out who wanted what jobs. But, uh, I want to just start out with the news. Uh, Does anybody have any new information on the shoot down of the Russian plane over the Sinai? I I do not know. There is uh, one story out today that uh, it appears that, uh, speaking of news, that Putin has now decided to actually attack ISIS. And they they seem to be assembling some helicopters uh, near the town of – what is this town? Palmyra. Palmyra. and uh, there's every indication that they might be uh, getting ready to do this. And just in a strictly speculative way, if Putin had somehow decided that maybe this was a bomb that brought down that that air, airliner, uh, would this be his way of of uh, retaliating? Uh, did any of you know about this? Uh, David Martin is the one who's just reported this and I mean it just Literally within the last hour, do you know anything about
3: I, that? I day? don't know about the Russians massing um, on Palmyra. Th- they have, after initially devoting most of their firepower to uh, non-ISIS combatants uh, who were on the in the province of Idlib, close to Latakia, do seem now to be hitting more ISIS targets uh, in the south and center and, and east of, of Syria. Um, and I'm sure the Russian public will will clamor for action if, if there's a judgment that this was a terrorist attack that brought their plane down. I talked today with um, uh, a commander of what's called the Southern Front of the Syrian uh, opposition uh, in Jordan who said that they are preparing for a uh, Syrian regime and Russian offensive south of Damascus in the next couple of days, which may be nominally targeted against uh, ISIS, but will uh, hit the rebels there very hard and they're worried about it.
4: And this happens at the same time that they're doing Aleppo. Yes. The, the, um, <clears throat> the Syrian offensive uh, on Aleppo using the Russian strikes, and we're starting to see some movement there. They haven't been able to make the kinds of gains that one would expect with Russian air support. But can they have a dual battlefront where you have um, regime forces moving on two fronts? We'll see. But so far in Aleppo, they've had a hard time really taking advantage of the air support that they've gotten from the Russians.
2: You know, um, <coughs> we take a little different approach to all this right now. Uh, my friend, and I know you all know him well, Graham Allison up at Harvard, mm. Uh, teaches this uh, uh, class in, in national security and he gives his students case studies and he starts out by saying the world is as is as it is right now uh, but and then he gives each of them a case study and he tells them write a memo if you were the president's senior advisor what would you advise him to do right now? Let's say put aside your journalistic hats right now, and put on your expert hats, because you really are. If you all were advising the President of the United States right now, he's just ordered 50 uh, special operations people into Syria. That's kind of the latest news I get. What would each of you advise the President at this moment? What, what would be your priorities? What would you tell him his strategy ought to be? What would you suggest? Where do we go from here?
5: Tom, do you want to? I resign. You resign. I am uh, flummoxed by Syria. So uh, I've been very humble about how to approach it. um, And and David um, knows a lot more about it than I do because he's, I know, been really reporting and I depend on his reporting for, for what's going on. So um, I would step back, Bob, and I would first um, uh, ask the question, what's going on from 30,000 feet? And I mean historically from 30,000 feet. And um, my view is that the, um, the Arab Muslim world is a pluralistic region that lacked pluralism. That is the core and, to me, central truth. And therefore, it um, had to be governed with the rare exception of a country near and dear to me, Lebanon, uh, it had to be covered vertically by iron fists from the top down Um, uh, to manage pluralistic region, Sunni, Shiites, Kurds, Jews, Turks, Christians, Yazidis, um, who uh, uh, really had no pluralism. So for 500 years, that iron fist was called the Ottomans. For 50 years, it was called the British and French. And for 50 years, it was, the last 50 years, called kings, colonels, and dictators. Um, and I think from 30,000 feet, what's going on, helped in part by us, but also driven very much from the bottom up as well in other countries, is um, there's no more Ottomans, there's no more British and French, and there are fewer and fewer kings, colonels, and dictators who can govern this region vertically with an iron fist from the top down. Therefore, it can actually only be governed horizontally by the constituent communities forging social contracts for how to live together as equal citizens. So what you're seeing, I think from 30,000 feet, is a region trying to go from a vertical system of political control to horizontal. Now you can do that if you have one of three transition (laughs) mechanisms, it seems to me. One is if you have a Mandela um, uh, who can bring the parties together. Um, It turns out there was only one of those and he did not work the Arab world, okay? Um, Second is if you have a military, a far-sighted military. We hoped Egypt's military would play that rule. Turned out they were more interested in their officers' clubs and their network of hotels and protecting that. Lastly is if you have a far-sighted midwife. That was the role we assigned ourselves to in Iraq and Afghanistan, turned out we didn't know what we were doing. Um, if you have no military, no Mandela, and no midwife, and you need to go from vertical control to horizontal control, um, you have the mess you have today. Um, uh, you have a region in can't be governed by iron fist anymore, but can't forge the pluralism that is required for horizontal you know, governance. So you get ISIS, you get total fragmentation. And um, that's sort of one set of problems. The second set of problems, and the point I'm trying to make is this is, this is not your grandfather's political problem. This is a deep, uh, civilizational problem. You know, 60 years ago, I'm just making this up, but uh, Asian leaders basically came to their people and said, my people, here's the deal. We're gonna take away your freedom. We're gonna give you the best education, infrastructure, and export-led economics that money can buy. 60 years, you'll build a middle class. Big enough, you'll basically take your freedom back. And that's what happened in Indonesia, Taiwan, Korea, etc. In the Arab world, the Arab leaders came to their people 60 years ago and said, my people, here's the deal. We're gonna take away your freedom, and we're gonna give you the Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> we're gonna give you a shiny object over here to distract you from our predation. So what you see today is the sum total of that fork 60 years later. Back in 1950, South Korea and Egypt had the same per capita income. Today, I believe South Korea has a GDP triple the entire Arab world combined. So we are dealing with a deep, deep hole of incredibly bad choices made over multiple generations of misgovernance. So I am frankly humbled by the problem. I'm open, I would tell the president, any rational solution anyone comes up to, I'm not against a no-fly zone, this or that, just show me how it will work, how it will put this region on a different pathway, and as the National Security Advisor, I will sign on to it, and uh, we can forge ahead.
3: David? Well, I I admire, that's Tom's elegant um, (laughs) 30,000-foot view, is is surely right. The, the problem for the president, the problem for me sitting up here is that I, I want to respond to the immediate yeah. nightmare question of what, what should, okay, so what should we do uh, right now? Uh, it, it is poignant, it's painful to watch this president who campaigned in 2008, who came into office with the idea that the mistakes the United States had made, in the aftermath of 9-11, in particular with the invasion of Iraq, um, could be remedied over time by uh, a gradual uh, uh, pullback towards, we speak of of offshore balancing as the foreign policy concept. And it's clear that, that President Obama, with the support of the country, wanted to step back from these conflicts, reduce our military involvement. It was a passion uh, he was uh, often attacked on Capitol Hill for being weak, feckless, but I think he was reflecting a, a deep, genuine feeling in the country. We've gone down the wrong road. We're stuck in this nightmare. As Tom says, these, these uh, epical problems are playing out, and we're caught in the middle of them. Uh, t- to watch over the last several years that as we have stepped back, and we did step back, Others have stepped forward in ways that that severely complicate the nightmare in that part of the world. I mean, all the things Tom says are true, but um, I don't think that ISIS is inevitable. And I think, left to itself, ISIS really does just get worse and worse. It it metastasizes. So, um, we have watched the president in the last uh, few weeks uh, first with Afghanistan and now with Syria, uh, do the, pretty much the opposite of what he said he was going to do. And he's reacting, I think, correctly and appropriately to the, to the reality of these nightmare problems played out against the tableau that, that Tom describes. Um, I think his, his, several of his basic ideas are correct. Um, I think he is right to think that we do have a stake in degrading and ultimately, I won't say destroying, but uh, containing um, uh, ISIS. I, I think, left to itself, it is dangerous to our friends, to to Europe through terrorism, uh, to our interests. And so I think we, we have a, a reason to be involved. I think he's also right in saying that we cannot do this ourselves, That that's the abiding lesson of this period is that unless people in the region take ownership of solving the problems, they don't get solved. I mean, we have watched the limits of our military power. We have an incredible military. Uh, Some of its very best people will be entering Syria uh, from our Special Operations Forces. But we've seen the limits of of what they can do. So the President says, you must uh, be involved. Uh, And I think, finally, the, the President is correct in saying that uh, responding to this over time, and I, I think Tom and I and, and Nancy would agree, this is through the rest of our lifetimes, through the rest of most of our lifetimes. This story will play out. I'd be surprised if we had much more than stable ceasefire lines anytime soon as a as a, as a goal. So over this period in which in which we deal with this metastasizing problem, we need to have partners. We need friends. We need to, our power will be augmented, amplified to the extent that we're working with uh, <coughs> countries, uh, people uh, who, who share our interests. I am not someone who thinks that the clash of civilizations, Muslim versus Christian, uh, Muslim versus whatever, is inevitable, um, inescapable. I just don't believe that. I, I, you know, I, as I travel uh, the Arab world, which I, which I still try to do, I see uh, uh, an Arab world in vertigo, in free fall. People just don't—they don't know where they are in space and they, and they, they need um, uh, their friends, and I would say, first of all, America. I mean, look at how they reacted to Vladimir Putin just because he came in acting like he knew what he was doing. I, you know, I don't think he really did. I don't think this is a tactician, not a strategist, but, but it was galvanizing for people who are in free fall. So I should turn it over to Nancy.
2: Well, Nancy, you, and Nancy, you grew up, your parents are Egyptian, right? Mm-hmm. And you grew, spent a lot of growing-up time there and then and then here so from your point of view and all the time you spent out there where do we go from here
4: well it's funny i um let me apologize for my voice i can survive war but not a cold apparently so i apologize (laughs) it's interesting i was just thinking about david's comments one of the things i hear um so often is that russia has a plan but not a strategy and the u.s has a strategy but not a plan and so To your original question, what are some things that can be done? I think practically one thing that could be done is reconciling the language with which we talk about this war, because the language actually affects the military fighting. Uh, Obama has presented himself as sort of a limited interventionist. We've sort of seen this trickling of US troops in Iraq and now Syria, and yet we've said the goal is to defeat and degrade ISIS. If you're not willing to call it combat and what you're asking of the troops, how can you then hope to then defeat and degrade ISIS? That, in, in my mind, there has to be some reconciliation of the language. If it is containment, and, and that's fine, that the, that, that the war fighting meet the goal, because I think one of the problems that Americans are having is, we say we're committed to defeating and degrading ISIS, and yet we are reticent to put any sort of ground forces behind it. Just today, in the last 24 hours, in an interview with NBC News, Obama said, Uh, we're not going to be at the front lines. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile saying you're going to defeat ISIS and you don't want to be on on the front lines? And so as someone who's been watching this and seeing it from the Pentagon, I think that's one area. And the other area that you're starting to see changes, remember last year everybody was talking about we're going to go after Iraq first, the ISIS problem in Iraq, and then Syria. And we're starting to see an acknowledgement that those borders don't exist the way they did just a few years ago. You saw in um, Secretary Carter's comments about his strategy, the three Rs, Ramadi, Raqqa, and raids. And what that was an acknowledgement of is that this border does not exist, that to affect events in Syria, you have to do things in Iraq and vice versa. So in that sense, I think it's it's a movement forward, but overall, um, I I think uh, there are so many basics that have to be reconciled because this has been something that the U.S. has been reticent to get involved in, but now it is involved, and that those questions need to be answered. As, as someone of the region, I, and, and, and as someone who spent so much time on the front lines, I'm not as um, confident that U.S. intervention can fundamentally change the course of the region, that this has to be organic to the region. And so in that regard, these, these goals of defeating ISIS, I'm not sure that that's something the U.S. can do. The U.S. can help towards containing ISIS, but there are structural problems within the region that allow ISIS to grow. Even if you remove ISIS, for example, in Raqqa, if those structural problems aren't aren't addressed, they just emerge somewhere Mm. else. And I think that's something for the region to address. And And right now, there's not as much enthusiasm as one would like for that, because there are their own domestic factors at play. Someone like Sisi, for example, in Egypt exploits ISIS to justify his return to dictatorial rule. And so those are some of the competing dynamics. But I would really stress the messaging be consistent with how U.S. troops are being deployed.
2: Well, how about this whole idea of we send (coughs) 50 special operations uh, people out there? Uh, Can that make a difference? Uh, Is it going to take more?
5: Well, you know, I always go back to the Iraq experience because in many ways, Bob, Iraq and Syria were twins and one had a, a, a Sunni minority ruling a Shia majority, the one had, a, in effect a Shia minority, Alawite ruling a, a Sunni a majority, um, and with a Kurdish element in, in both. And um, you know what happened as a result of the Iraq war is it, it kind of became against the law to talk about Iraq in this country. If you were for the war, mm-hmm. uh, as I was for democracy reasons, you should shut up and die. And if you were against it, um, you were a genius. But the thing itself never got discussed. So we spent a trillion dollars lost, we lost 5,000 almost lives, Rockies, tens of thousands. There was never a Pentagon Papers. We we never did a, what happened here, you know? um, And I think that's very important before you dive into Syria, you know? So I would give you my one minute analysis of the Iraq War, you know, and to me, uh, Iraq was a grenade and Saddam was the pin. And we came in and pulled the pin and then did the geopolitical equivalent of falling on a grenade. We took the whole blast, we and our allies. And, but we did monopolize force in the country. We took over the country. Um, And uh, then we triggered a civil war, didn't mean to, but didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, So we unleashed a civil war where the different communities tested one another. What you got, baby, what you got? Um, And uh, that took about three years, and they exhausted themselves in the process. Then I would say we did the most radical thing America has done in the Arab world uh, in the post-war period. We actually sponsored the first consensual election between the constituent communities and elements of an Arab country. Um, But I think it's very important to understand. We did that from eight in the morning until midnight. Uh, From midnight to eight in the morning, General McChrystal and the boys took out a lot of bad actors on both sides. They basically took out the worst jihadis in both the Sunni and Shiite community. That allowed the center to be much more relaxed and come together. We had the 2010 election in which the most multi-sectarian party, the candidate running on the most multi-sectarian list, a Yadalawi, got the most votes. We, in our brilliance, and people need to be remember this when they say, let's dive into Syria. We then said, no, we're going to give it to uh, Maliki. We know who's best to run this country. Of course, the Iranians wanted that too. Um, and then we left. OK, so when I look at Syria, um, I mean, if I were really proposing what I thought would work, it would be an international force. I think has to take over the entire country, um, decapitate the leadership, um, uh, and govern the country for five years, and then maybe have an election five years later, when you have calmed down the place, when you have created an economy, when you've stabilized uh, Syria. I think anything less than that is a fool's errand. It's just not going to work. Okay, And I think you have to study what happened in Iraq both what we got right and what we got terribly wrong. Um, I think there is, uh, again, Iraqis, when they had the security and the peace, what option did they choose? They chose multi-sectarian party. They did not want to live as Shiites and Sunnis and minorities. Um, And I think it's something we really seriously miss. So um, if somebody wants to go all the way and get an international force, takes over the country, uh, I I will vote vote for that, but anything less than that um, strikes me as it's just not going to be effective.
4: It's hard to believe that 50 could actually have an impact, but from what I can tell the when you talk to people in the Pentagon, the idea is to use those 50 to help cut off supply lines that ISIS gets. Um, the Kurds just took over Talabiyad, which is a border town in northern Syria. They have a very tenuous hold on it, but one of the key advantages of Talabiyad is that it cuts off an ISIS supply line from Turkey into Syria by Taraka. To, to It seems that these 50 are designed to um, get the Kurds and the Arabs to work together, very optimistic, and go after some of the supply lines. It's why you're starting to hear the Kurds going after Sinjar in Iraq, to start to cut off that supply line from Iraq into Syria. Now that Talabiyad is in Kurdish control, that appears to be the the goal, with the ultimate goal to then go after Raqqa. The complication is the (coughs) Kurds, their goal is a contiguous state, and they'll, they'll, Raqqa's not really part of their equation, they'll do it. But they, they will tell you they cannot hold it. And, and, and so there's a limit to what um, those advisors can do. There's great enthusiasm for going after Raqqa, but it's interesting, we're starting to see, remember last year everybody was talking about Mosul and we started to hear Raqqa, that you're starting to see people sh- sort of step back a little bit and start to think strategically about how to um, make a Raqqa battle to your greatest advantage. It is ambitious at best. Sinjar will be a difficult battle, as enthusiastic as the Kurds are about it. And so 50 advisors in and of itself doesn't seem very impactful, but potentially they cut off supply lines. And then the real question becomes, even if they're successful in cutting off those supply lines, will ISIS find another route to get supplies in? Is it a game of whack-a-mole, or is it something that really leads to an enduring impact on, on, the, on the quality of life for ISIS and Raqqa.
2: David, you, uh, you wrote recently, we simply have to improve our <coughs> intelligence capabilities. Putin's arrival in mm. Syria was just the latest in a very long list of surprises. The rise of ISIS, also totally surprising. Is better intelligence actually possible?
3: Well, uh, that's, that's the right question. Uh, I, I, I am convinced, as I look at each of these stories, uh, uh, Iraq, now Syria, the larger uh, Arab Spring, that the abiding truth with each is that we just don't know enough. We're making consequential decisions that lead to multi-trillion-dollar uh, engagements. Uh, uh, our country has been uh, really reshaped by the Iraq War, and we, we didn't know enough. Um, these are extremely hard targets uh, to, to penetrate and collect intelligence about. Um, our ability to use electronic um, uh, systems has been our, our salvation, not just in this conflict, but really uh, through, the, through the Cold War as well. Our technical collection has, has always been superb and makes up for a lot of other shortcomings. But um, I, 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 I'm certain that um, before making more big decisions, we need to know more. One reason I think it's, it's wise of the president to send this very limited force on the ground into Syria is so that we will know more. We'll have a little bit more of that ground truth, that granularity at our fingertips. We authorized and spend $500 million to build uh, a Syrian opposition force that uh, basically uh, uh, Lloyd Austin said they had five or six they had more than five or six but but the, the, the few people they had just walked into a trap when they were deployed in July in uh, northern Syria because of poor intelligence. They, they literally walked into a trap, some were kidnapped they were then attacked by people we thought would would not, so so we, we do need um, absolutely to, to know more. Say one more thing about this force of 50 people. Um, this force and the group that it's supporting is an example of one of the few bits of good fortune that we've had in this conflict, which is that these Syrian Kurds in the group that's known as the YPG, which is the Kurdish initials for People's Protection Unit, are fierce, committed fighters, and they've been incredibly successful on the battlefield by the count of the people who work with them at the Pentagon. They have taken 17,000 square kilometers in northeast Syria. They have just rolled. They have rolled west along the Turkish border all the way to the Euphrates, and then they had to be stopped uh, because the Turks were so upset. They um, devastated ISIS in Kobani. There were 3,000 to 4,000 killed. I mean, they are tough fighters. We have been supporting them from the air. Our ability to, you know, from the air, lays targets and then go in pretty, pretty closely is now, um, you know, quite extraordinary. But the, 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 what the President basically decided was these fighters who stood up and have done well we're gonna support more, not a whole lot more, but we're going to support them with 50, 50 people on the ground. And those people will enable more aggressive operations. I think Nancy's right about cutting off roots. But you know, I've written that the idea is sometime in the spring, you know, over the next hill, uh, we will tr- move toward Raqqa. There was a battle yesterday in a town uh, to, the, to the east of Raqqa as we begin to, to help, help them close in. Uh, so I think, again, going back to what I said at the beginning, the only way to think about this is to help people who will stand up for themselves. These people are fighting for their lives and where they live and fighting for their future. They're brave as hell. And uh, I think the president probably is right to do it. You know, Not you know, 100%, you know, uh, thousands know, of people, but these 50 will make a difference.
5: You know, Bob, just to pick up on something <laughs> David said, this is the Schieffer School event. Um, uh, David and I have, I think I can say this, covered every Middle East war since 1975 on the ground, either as correspondents there or as columnists or whatnot. This is the first war we can't cover. I mean, I've been to Tel Aviv for a day, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't like living in Beirut, going from the phalanges to the Palestinians to the Morabi So by the end of the day, we, the reporters, had an incredibly rounded view of what was going on. And as a collective group, not any one individual, but as a collective, we were a source of enormous intelligence uh, for, the, for the reading public, but also for the government. This is the first war. I can't cut. You. you get your head chopped off. So mm-hmm. there's no one. And yeah, the Arab news organizations will send someone in for a day here. That there's nothing living there. Hearing the asides from people, understanding the true texture and rhythm. What's going on? What's driving an ISIS? You know, um, and and uh, to me, it's it's related to a second point. Uh, yeah, to me, the single greatest <coughs> um, uh, underappreciated factor of Arab politics, as we write about it tend to write about in these grand ideological terms is governance, okay? And mostly (coughs) misgovernance, corruption, injustice. That's what the Arab Spring was about. How people live their lives every day. And um, it's true, we can find Kurds who will fight with us or whatever against uh, this group or that. um, But ultimately, these are Sunni regions and without good Sunnis to replace bad Sunnis, (coughs) Sunnis who are ready to rule and um, in a just uh, way their own populations, um, uh, it's not gonna work, okay? I mean, at the end of the day, the Middle East only puts a smile on your face when it starts with them, okay? When it starts with them, it has the single most important quality of any issue in international relations. (coughs) It is self-sustaining. And without self-sustaining decent governance, there is no town we can't take. There's no government we can't topple. But without local people ready to rule and govern in a in a decent and just way, um, nothing is sustainable. That's the lesson of Afghanistan. It's the lesson of Iraq. It was a lesson of Vietnam. Yeah, it's about mm-hmm. governance, Which, and we so on. rarely talk about that because yeah. we find our bastards to rule instead of their bastards. But they're <coughs> bastards at the end, and the people know that, and that's what it's about. Let's uh, shift
2: to the latest surprise. One day, Putin shows up. Russians start moving in. Does Putin think that he can actually impose a military solution on all of this?
4: He doesn't have to. I mean, he won so much by being able to come in and win the Arab street in the matter of a day by doing these very indiscriminate strikes aggressively. You had Iraqis asking russian intervention after uh what they saw in syria so he doesn't have to have a big military when um and that's the view from the pentagon that that uh th- the fact that he's been able to impact the war puts him back on the world stage and arguably that was the the, the goal and at the same time the visit that assad did to moscow a few weeks later gave um, assad some legitimacy and so he was able to protect russian interests remember that the russians have both a naval base and an airfield in Syria and have long-standing relationships with them. And so he doesn't have to have a major tactical win, although that would be great. He's what g- gained a lot just by being able to come in and completely reshape how we talk about Syria and who are the people who have to be at the table when it comes time for reaching a political settlement.
2: What do you think?
3: Well, I, I think Nancy's right <clears throat> that uh, Putin's uh, decisive military intervention um, uh, uh, was a galvanizing moment for, for an Arab world that has basically given up on the United States, the, the efficacy of American power. I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but we're the god that failed. Uh, Arab respect for American power has has been the dominating fact of life for the last half century, and they have watched as our military power, you know, we couldn't turn on the lights in Baghdad. we couldn't, We couldn't achieve the things that people assumed as a matter, of course, we could do. And then, so here comes Putin. um, And I think there's a sort of seduction that this powerful foreigner will will arrive and and change the situation. I think both Tom and I uh, feel that um, Putin has um, bitten off um, far more than he can chew, let alone digest here. Uh, It is hauntingly reminiscent of Afghanistan. Um, He has a... He has a, a big uh, Muslim population that is, you know, has engaged in terrorist are acts. Are they mostly
2: Sunni or Shiite? they're Sunnis, the ones Just in to say one more thing about Russia. this, and then
3: I turn to Tom because I know he's thought about this a lot. I was asking an Iraqi who was present during the meeting that Prime Minister Abadi had with Putin in New York. And a body, as it was described to me, was as impressed as I think people are throughout the Arab world about, oh my gosh, you know, here come the Russians. And so a body is said to have asked Putin, "Are you serious about this? Meaning, are you? Are do you have the staying power that the Americans didn't?" And Putin responded, "I am serious. That we have two thousand, but sometimes you'll hear five thousand or more." 2,000 Russians in ISIS, and I have to deal with them. And I think there is that core of strategic reality in what Putin is doing. He has a big Muslim population at home in a way that we, you know, it's not an issue for us in the same way. And I think he is serious about it. I I fear he has, you know, entered a terrain that will be as pitiless for Russian power as it has been for America, but we'll see.
2: Well, I mean, does he put a target on his back if most of the Muslims in, in Russia are, are Sunnis? Because he's heading up Team Shiite here, isn't he? I mean, by coming in Yeah,
5: here. I mean, there are several things I, I've reacted to. You know, it brings to mind. I mean, first, there's a fundamental rule of, I think, covering the Middle East and Middle East politics, which is that um, all important politics in the Middle East happens the morning after the morning after. Oh, the morning after, everybody's a hero. Nasrallah was a hero the morning after the 2006 war. Two weeks later, he gave an interview and said, had I known then what I know now, after the Israelis basically destroyed the southern suburbs of Beirut, I might not have done this. Um, And uh, so I always wait till the laws of gravity apply, and uh, that always happens, uh, as they say in Arabic, bad bukra, you know, I mean, the morning after the morning after. the other thing I, I would say, I, I think Putin's one of the greatest overrated leaders in the world, bar none. Um, I think he's a man who is not just in Syria, but in Ukraine, fighting mother nature, human nature, and Moore's law all at the same time. Okay? Um, uh, he's fighting human nature in Ukraine. People actually would like to be part of the West, You know, not some cockamamie Russian economic union. They've kind of been able to compare the EU to that. Um, he's fighting mother nature. Uh, he's uh, bet his whole future on a natural resource that if we don't keep it in the ground, we're gonna be a bad biological experiment. And, um, uh, and he's fighting Moore's law. People are connected, they're talking, everybody knows what's going on. So um, I think, I look at him in, in Syria and I'm always reminded what uh, the great Lebanese uh, historian Kamal Salibi used to say which is great powers should not be involved in the politics of small tribes and he is now enmeshed in the politics of small tribes. And i just say one last thing, yeah, Bob, yeah. which is that he cannot win, he cannot defeat ISIS. The only way to defeat ISIS in a self-sustaining way is if you replace bad Sunnis with good Sunnis. The idea that you're gonna need good Sunnis to govern those areas and be supportive of a mass-murdering Syrian dictator at the same time, show me how you're gonna square that circle. So to me, there is a fundamental contradiction at the core of his strategy, and this is going to end in tears for him. Uh, I want to ask you all, uh, I want to get a couple
2: of questions from the audience I'll be thinking of, but before we do that and while you're thinking of your question, (coughs) do any of you see any chance of a negotiated settlement here that somehow the United States and Putin, is there any way they work in concert here? what, what happens on that front?
4: Well, the challenge is, is it a proxy war or is it a civil war? There was a meeting in Vienna last week with 20 countries, the, op- the Syrian opposition wasn't there, Assad wasn't there. And so the question that has to sort of be answered is, where is Assad in the equation? At what point do you bring him to the table at some point, and if so, when? And so it's we see these sort of early spurts, starts of, of a negotiated settlement. but. If you believe it's a proxy war, then he doesn't need to be there. If you believe it's a civil war, he does need to be there. The U.S. has sort of said he has to go eventually. The big question in the political settlement is what happens with Assad, and that has yet to be answered. We see talks that are going on without him. Russia has not proposed having talks uh, with the opposition. We haven't even worked out who should be at the table. So it's hard. Presumably at some point we'll get to a political settlement, but until – one answer is who is at the table. It's hard to envision how that political settlement plays out.
3: Ground zero for me, and I think for Tom, too, and when I, we think about the Middle East is, is Lebanon. Um, and the Lebanese Civil War, which we, which we covered, um, is instructive in this, in this sense. Lebanon, through those 15 years, was uh, cantonized, it was partitioned, as Syria is today. Syria is shattered. The idea that you're going to restore a country called Syria anytime soon is false. Um, But it is possible, I think, over time with good policy, to gradually stabilize those cantons and have ceasefire lines that hold, and then begin to gradually, with an international and regional mandate, much as Lebanon had in the Taif agreement, put an umbrella over that. Those, those cantons, those different parts uh, of Syria, uh, and begin to have uh, some kind of governance. I think right now we should be, be thinking about how in places where we have some friends on the ground in Syria, we can begin to de-escalate and help people provide services, get schools running again, get you know, some kind of... Court system, get you know agriculture and water management, just the basic basic things. Um, I'd love to see that happen uh, in the in the area around Daraa. I'd love to see that happen in areas in the north if we can be successful against the extremists. Meanwhile, the 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 effort to gradually squeeze and degrade ISIS is going to continue, and I actually think that, given time and and good policy. I think that's probably something that's, that's, that's doable. Putting Syria back together is going to be much harder. It's going to take more time, but when you look at Lebanon, you know it's not impossible.
2: Tom, yeah, let, not, me, not, you know, like let me just course, ask you yeah. one thing, mm-hmm. uh, and I want you to add on to that, but I just forgot to bring this up, and, and I, I wish you'd just talk a little bit what John Alterman said. I was stunned when I heard him say, "What this is the greatest refugee problem since World War II? Two. Greater. Yeah. Greater than World War yeah. II?"
5: What is the impact of all this? Well, you know, I, I think again, I, I I've got to go to thirty thousand feet because I don't think this is isolated. Um, uh-huh. And um, I'm, I'm working on a, I'm, I'm partial leave now, because I'm working on a book. And, and um, part of the theme of the book is that uh, if you want to explain more things in more places in more ways on more days, I think what is really shaping the world more broadly is that the three largest forces on the planet, the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law, are all in a simultaneous nonlinear acceleration. They all look like this. Moore's Law is the speed and power of microchips doubling. Climate change looks like this. Globalization looks like that. Mm-hmm. And I think what they've created is is basically a hurricane. And what you're seeing in the Middle East and Central Africa is a hurricane go through a trailer park. Um, uh, that the the countries that are being hammered by this hurricane first. Remember, Syria has a huge climate dimension. The reason I was in Talabiyad was to interview climate refugees because the Syrian revolution was preceded for four years by the worst drought in Syria's modern history. A million Syrian farmers and herders left their homes, flocked to the cities, overwhelmed the infrastructure. Assad did nothing for them. They didn't start the revolution. But when it started, as one of them says in in, uh, documentary I did uh, for Showtime, Years of Living Dangerously, with the first call of allah u We were ready to join. These, there's a huge climate dimension to this story. And I think what's happening, uh, the, and the countries that are being hammered first, that are the, are the most artificial ones, those whose borders are primarily straight lines. Libya, Syria, <coughs> Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Chad, Mali, they're all like, to me, trailer homes built on a cement slab with no foundation and no basement.
2: And did you have anything you want to add to what uh, David
5: said? Well, I say this because I think we're—I think the, whole, the new divide in the world is no longer east, west, north, south. The new divide is between the world of order and the world of disorder. And what you're seeing come out of the Middle East and Africa is basically tens of thousands of people trying to get out of the world of disorder into the world of order. And this is part of that, that phenomenon. Um, I think David's exactly right. Um, you know, Lebanon really uh, is to Syria what Off Broadway is to Broadway. So it, it'll—it's the mini version. Study what happened there, and um, uh, ta- if three things brought about the Lebanese peace agreement, one was um, uh, the parties got exhausted—that was a huge dimension. Second, they came up with a formula that I think is the is the transition formula between where they are now and pluralism, and it was called "No victor, no vanquished." You have your place, I have mine. But there was a third key element to Taif. You had an enforcer. He was called Syria at the time. So you can work out a peace agreement here, but in the transition, somebody's gotta be the enforcer because trust is broken down now between all the communities. So they can say no victor, no vanquish, but without an enforcer there, as Syria played, um, post-Taif, and Taif had another element. The minority was overrepresented. So Christians were 30% of the country, they got 50% of the seats. So I think the ultimate solution for Iraq is a Shiite majority with an overrepresented Kurdish and Sunni minority. And for Syria, it's a Sunni majority with an overrepresented Alawite Kurdish minority. That's the only way these how you get there, I can't say, but the top model I think is the right one. But you better have an enforcer. Because the idea we're just gonna work all this out in Geneva and then everyone's gonna go home and it's gonna self-enforce. Um, there's not going to be some immaculate solution there, you know. Um, somebody's going to have to have a club.
2: All right, we're going to have some questions, and we're close to out of time, so let's make the questions short and real questions, right? Okay, right here. I'll start here on this.
6: Yes. Uh, I, Ted oh, Sorry, Ted Khattouf. I've served in Syria at the U.S. Embassy on... Th- in three different decades, but I don't pretend to know, you know, Nusra front and Ahrar al-Sham and the Islamic front. But it's precisely, as you said, we don't have intelligence. And so while there's all this talk about what do we do about Assad and when should he go and how should he go, et cetera, and we have to, we have to degrade ISIS, I agree we're not going to destroy ISIS, we have to contain them and degrade them. But can you really see Nusra coming to the table? Uh, Ahrar maybe Ahrar al-Sham would come to the table, but what would they accept other than an Islamist state and the like? So the real question I'm asking is how powerful do you think these non-ISIS Islamist groups are? Are they just popular because they have the know-how to fight Assad and his regime, or are they genuinely have a wide following which is really, really bad.
3: Excellent question.
5: Who, who wants to David answer David's talked to them a lot. You know?
3: Well, I, I have talked to them, and, and I, in a brief, uh, crazy uh, trip to uh, Aleppo in 2012, saw them fight and was told by the Free Syrian Army, uh, they're the best fighters. If we have a difficult objective, we send Jabal al-Nusra. Al- uh, I was told by doctors who treat the casualties for the rebels, you know, the casualties who really get pounded are from Jabhat al-Nusra. They're the, they're the tough fighters. And so they become the heroes of this revolution. It is, it is a bottom-up revolution, you know, for better or worse. That's one reason it's so disorganized, so, so, so lacking in command and control. But I think, uh, Ted, that you're, you're right that uh, the problem over the next hill because I think we're now on the way to gradually degrading and destroying uh, ISIS. as these uh, Islamic groups? They have been deeply infiltrated by, financed by, armed by Saudi Arabia, Turkey, gutter. Uh, if you were to talk to a guttery, knowledgeable guttery officials, I'm sure you do. You would hear that Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, uh, is actually has elements that they can talk to, that they can work with, that they think might eventually split. I have no idea if that's true, but um, over time, damping down that Islamist uh, feeling, unless the Turks, the Saudis, the Gutteries, others, help us with that, the Jordanians, it ain't gonna happen. But that's how it, how it would happen.
5: You know, right. you, just to say one thing about that. Yeah, go ahead. You get what you fight for, Ted. So um, Islamists are fighting for an Islamic state. The Kurds are fighting for a Kurdish state. Um, and I would say there's a lot of Syrians in the Free Syrian Army who are fighting for their homes and villages. But who's fighting for a multi-sectarian, multi-ethnic, democratic Syria? And I think that's the, it's not that Syrians wouldn't want that. I think many of them would love to live there. But who's fighting for that is, is, is one of the real asymmetries in this battle.
2: Very. Uh, this gentleman right here.
7: Hi there. My name is Tyler Thompson. Uh, I'm the policy director for an organization called United for a Free Syria. Uh, my buddy and I here are playing a little drinking game where whenever somebody says ISIS take a shot and whenever somebody says Assad, uh, I take a shot. I'm stone cold sober. Uh, only Nancy, after 45 minutes, mentioned Assad. Uh, and the problem here is, you know, uh, David, I think it was you who mentioned it. Uh, we're looking for good Sunnis to govern, uh, you know, the areas where Sunnis primarily uh, had uh, were the primary population, which is the majority of Syria. When one of the parties to the conflict, the Assad government, has part of their central strategy of killing and displacing as many Sunnis as possible, all of those Sunnis are either in boats or dead. Um, and why, uh, in getting to a political solution to this crisis? What option is there if we're going to continue to give all the chips in the conflict to Russia and Assad, and Iran for that matter, whose sole goal is, is eliminating um, huge portions of these indigenous Sunni populations? Thanks.
2: Who wants to take that one?
4: I, 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 first of all, you're welcome. For the drink. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, look, you've got the Shia acts, Iranian, Russian, uh, led Shia access and this US led Sunni access and the Shia ones more aggressive it's why I'm not optimistic about a political settlement anytime soon I mean I, I think if we can't even agree on what Syria is or what what remains Syria? I mean are the Kurds going to give back the territory they've gained probably not <laughs> good luck with that exactly is the Assad regime going to stay within the boundaries of whatever Al- white sign we all agree on? Probably not. So, you're right, the sort of Sunni migration leaves little hope for a Sunni state. But it's hard for me to think from here, as an external player, how you come up with a solution when we can't even agree on what the state is or what the neighboring state is. So, for me, it's light years ahead. We don't even know where the borders are. And how is Turkey gonna react when there's a when there's a when there's a Sunni uh, or the, when there's a Kurdish Syrian Kurdish uh, state near their border? So to me, we we still have to figure out what the borders are and that's that's years away. So I, I agree with you. I mean I think you know the joke we, we I don't I don't wanna offend anyone, but we make at the Pentagon is where are the moderates? They're in other countries, you know. <laughs> When, when, the, when, the, when the Pentagon will talk about the moderate fighters and the moderate this, we'll always say, well, where are they? And they're not there anymore. So it is it is a challenge. And, and I, in my mind, it's just so far down the road. I don't know what you do when you have an access that is more committed to its cause, the Shia one, than the US-led Sunni one. They're more empowered, frankly. I mean, I think we're seeing increased involvement by, by Saudi and Qatar, but I'm not sure that that's very helpful towards a moderate Sunni case. On the contrary, I think it's fueling this idea of Sunni jihadism as the only solution for a Sunni voice in, in the region, in that part of the region. One more about question. I just want to say
5: one thing in relation to yes. something that Nancy said about borderless, because there's actually two communities in the Arab world who look at the region without borders. One is ISIS and the other is the environmentalists. Okay? So ISIS sees it as <clears throat> an undifferentiated Islamist region, Islamic region. And environmentalists see it as one single environmental hydrological reason, region. And if you don't govern it that way, um, you know, I, I did a column earlier this summer um, uh, on the day that the temperature in an Iranian town at the head of the Persian Gulf hit 161 degrees, okay? It was 131 degrees Fahrenheit and 90 degrees uh, dew point, which is, the heat index was 161. Mother Nature is going to kill them all so much faster than they kill each other. This region is really on the tipping point of an environmental disaster. And until they understand, you know, you talk to sometimes young Arabs and Muslims and say, we've tried everything. We've tried Nasserism, Socialism, Communism, Islamism, Liberalism, nothing worked. And my answer is there's actually one ism you haven't tried, and that's environmentalism. And I'm not being cute here, because environmentalists understand there ain't no Shiite water, there's no Sunni air, and there's no Kurdish soil. And unless you govern these, as a shared commons. Mother Nature is gonna hammer this region so badly that it isn't even close to the kind of refugee flows we're gonna see when you get regular temperatures of 161 degrees. Remember, two governments fell this summer over air conditioning, basically. Uh, One in Lebanon and one in um, uh, Iraq. The Iraqi government was replaced over air conditioning and the one in Beirut was replaced over garbage.
2: Well, I think we're going to have to end it there because the time is up. Uh, On behalf of TCU uh, and CSIS, thank you all for coming. You're a great crowd. I wish we could go on for another hour.